0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Bucola, a political science professor at Linfield College. The subject of our conversation today is Nick's new book, The Fire is Upon Us James Baldwin, William F. Buckley, Jr., and the Debate over Race in America, out this month from Princeton University Press. Based around the iconic debate between Baldwin and Buckley, which took place at Cambridge Union in 1965, Ucola takes this moment as a point of entry into the intellectual trajectories of his two protagonists and their place within the broader cultural and political history of post-war civil rights activism and the rise of the modern conservative movement in the United States. Hey Nick, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, James. How are you?
0: I'm not too bad. So today we're going to be talking about your new book, The Fire Is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the debate over race in America. To start off with... Can you say a little bit about how you came to the project, and what the origins of this project were, how easy or hard the process was from that first idea to the the finished product?
1: Yeah, so I, I came to this project uh, through Baldwin. I was invited to write an essay about Baldwin way back in maybe 2012. And I actually didn't know Baldwin's work all that well when I started that project. And um, I started out by reading everything I possibly could that James Baldwin had, had written. And I, in that process, discovered uh, just messing around the internet, the debate with Buckley, which I think it was somewhere on my radar, but not something I had really um, examined closely. And I immediately became kind of mesmerized by the debate. It just seemed like such a Dramatic and important moment where you have these, you know, two figures who are so dramatically different clashing over, you know, this, this central issue of, of civil rights and also just sort of race and the American dream. And so, um, I began by writing the essay I had been invited to write for the Political Companion to James Baldwin. I used the Buckley Baldwin debate as a kind of framing device uh, in that essay, which was about Baldwin's uh, theory of freedom. And as I worked on the essay, I kept thinking, "There's a book. There's a book in here." Um, and at first, I thought maybe a you know a shorter book about you know Baldwin's trip to Cambridge. There have been a couple books that have come out about Malcolm X traveling to Oxford in 1964. And I thought maybe I'll I'll do something that's sort of focused on the debate and you know how Baldwin got there and so on. And then I, as I dug into the project, I thought there's a bigger book here. Um, Baldwin and Buckley were born about a year apart from each other. Baldwin in 1924, Buckley in 1925 and so they're almost exact contemporaries. They come of age intellectually at about the same moment, late 40s, uh, early 50s, and they reach the, you know, the, the prime of their career at the, this exact same moment in, in the 60s, and so I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to think about um, Baldwin and Buckley, do an intellectual, joint intellectual biography set against the backdrop of the rise of the civil rights and, and conservative movements, and so um, that's kind of how the the project got going in my mind. And then once I kind of had that vision um, the the process of of putting the book together was one that included a lot of you know methodologies that were kind of new to me. i'm I'm used to writing about the nineteenth century, so mostly you know reading reading old books and, and digging in archives, and that was certainly part of this process, but I also had the opportunity to interview some of the folks who hosted the debate, so the Cambridge students you know who hosted them in sixty five. Fortunately, many of those folks are, are still with us, you know, in their 70s. So we, my, my undergraduate students at Linfield College and I set out to track these folks down, as many of them as we could. And um, I interviewed them for the project. So that was another really important part of piecing the story of, of how the debate happened together and then sort of combining that with this archival work and intellectual history work I was I was doing.
0: That sounds really interesting. Could you say a bit more about the interviews that you did? I mean, how many people you were you able to track down? Uh, was there kind of a consensus over that, how they remembered the debate or was there a bit of variation?
1: Yeah, that was really fascinating. It was it was very frustrating at first to to find, you know, uh, as we set out to try to find folks. I mean, partially because that was kind of a new challenge for me as a researcher. But um, but my students were proved to be especially helpful in that regard. And, and we we found one particular student, uh, a guy named Christy Davies, who was a british academic a sociologist who had this really really interesting you know story in his own right because he was not only present for the Baldwin Buckley debate in 65 but he actually participated um, in the Oxford um, debate uh, with Malcolm X in 1964 he was he was invited to um, Cambridge and Oxford sort of do this exchange thing where they would invite the uh, debaters from the other school to participate in these big um, keynote debates and so Christy, once we found Christy, he was sort of the key figure because he helped us find everybody else. I spent probably about three hours on the phone with Christie interviewing him about the debate but also um, he was just you know there on his computer giving me email addresses and phone numbers of people that he still was in touch with, um, and so yeah, I would say all told, you know, just between you know correspondence and and phone interviews, um, probably you know I ended up talking with about ten folks that were that were there um, and participated in one way or another, uh, and then of course interviewed a bunch of, of uh, living people who knew Baldwin and or Buckley over the course of their lives. So, um, so yeah, that was a really really interesting part of the process uh, for me as a political theorist, you know. Slash intellectual historian to actually have living people to speak with and and um, yeah and it was in, in terms of epistemology and sort of questions of like of memory that was also very fascinating to see you know kind of how people remembered different aspects of what happened that night and um, and yeah and so there was you know it, it was it was a challenge to sort of figure out okay well this is how this person remembered you know subjectively. You know their role and and this is how you know kind of what the, the historical record indicates to me so yeah that was a really really cool part of the process um and i think it, it enriches the, the narrative in the book in, in a lot of ways you also mentioned
0: digging around in the archives um were there particular archives that were really central to this project maybe a few unexpected detours along the way
1: yeah yeah the archival work for this book was was really uh incredibly rewarding it, it was so William F. Buckley has a very extensive archive at Yale University, and uh, one of the really cool things about this project is that Baldwin and Buckley were both so prolific, um, not only in their sort of public writing but also just sort of private writing. And Buckley especially, uh, and um, and so you really, as a researcher, have this you know sort of you're able to peer into their minds almost every day. And as you're you know as I'm going through and recounting this really um, dramatic. Political history, right? Every day, you know, 1963, 1964, there's just every day there's something, you know, just incredibly important happening in the Civil Rights Revolution and also in the rise of the conservative movement. And so through this archival work, by looking at the Buckley Papers especially, I'm able to kind of really see how privately Buckley is thinking about some of these things and and, and how he's presenting his views publicly. Baldwin, um, when I started the project, Baldwin's papers were you know, not available. And so in 2017, when I was in the middle of working on the book is when, uh, Baldwin's, so Baldwin's papers were basically in his sister's house, as I understand it for about 30 years, um, after you know, Baldwin passed away in 1987. And in 19, in uh, 2017, uh, the Schomburg center for black culture in Harlem, uh, acquired the papers. And so, uh, that was a real, you know, fortuitous thing. I mean, I was very happy, uh, you know, at that point to be able to visit the Schomburg and, and to check out the Baldwin papers, which are not completely available to, to researchers. The um, letters that Baldwin wrote to his younger brother, David, and the letters that he wrote uh, to, to one, you know, sort of one of his lovers and close friends, uh, Lucien Habsburger, those are not going to be available to researchers till 2037, which was, um, you know, uh, I was grateful for what I was, was able to see because there's a lot of really great material there. Um, uh, I sort of wonder, you know, uh, what's in there, and, and I, I suspect there might be some things in there that would be relevant to this project. So I guess in the later edition, I'll add that stuff. But yeah, but it, in the archival research, I mean, it was fascinating to see, you know, that the there's just so many sort of nuggets. It's one of those things. As you know, James, as a researcher, you sort of go in there, and there's so much material, and often you spend hours and hours and don't come up with anything. But when those moments hit, when you find something. Um, you know, absolutely uh, breathtaking. It's it's uh, it's really powerful. I mean, I guess I guess I can give one example, maybe on each side to to illustrate that. With Baldwin, there's one really cool thing was I was able to find the handwritten notes that he had prepared on hotel stationery that he brought with him to the Cambridge Union that night, which was really cool. On the uh, the, the on the on the Buckley side, I mean, there was a lot of on the question of race, kind of watching Buckley. Buckley's mind work behind the scenes was really, I think, the most fascinating thing. So, for example, in 1963, when things are just, you know, as I said before, it seems like every day there's sort of a major event in the civil rights struggle. Um, Buckley essentially, you know, writes this memo to his, his associate editors and says, you know, I want each of you to prepare a memo, you know, to sort of help me think through what we, sh- you know, how we should handle uh, the, the the civil rights struggle, and he's clearly trying to figure out how to navigate. You know, he has he's been in this position resist of resistance that I'm sure we'll talk about later in the conversation for for years, just you know, opposed to every step of the way, Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act, you know, all these different. Uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act of, of 1957, you know, the, the Civil Rights of uh, 1960. He's a critic of the sit-in movement, a critic of the Freedom Riders. And he, um, you know, he's clearly by 63 trying to sort through, okay, how do we adapt, you know, and still find a position of resistance, but a position of resistance that might be more effective given the change that's occurring. And so being able to sort of look at those interoffice office memos at National Review was really Really revealing. Um, and then I just one more thing about the archival research that was that was really helpful was that Baldwin and Buckley both received a lot of fan mail, and that fan mail is available, you know, uh, in the in the archives of both of them. And so, when, in the aftermath of the Cambridge debate, and the second time Buckley and Baldwin met, uh, which was a few months later on a television program called Open End, uh, they met in New York and had a second debate. Uh, it was really helpful to see kind of how. Audience reaction, you know, to to their encounters and, and sort of how that helped, you know, help me understand kind of the the perception of of the the events and uh, and what happened on those nights. You
0: mentioned uh, a little bit earlier a couple of other books that have come out that focus on, you know, specific moments or events. So you have you know Stephen Tuck's book and Saladin Ambar's book on uh, Malcolm X, Oxford, and um, you've also had books like uh, Brian Ward, who's a colleague of mine. Um, wrote a book on Martin Luther King's uh, visit to Newcastle in the UK to uh, accept a um, honorary uh, degree. In terms of structuring the narrative um, of this text, how challenging was it to, to focus around a single event i mean you know the the book is it's it's a chunky book so obviously you, you you talk about a lot of other things that aren't just uh this one debate but did you know was that was it challenging was it was it useful was it instructive in in having this this organizing focus of a, of a single event
1: yeah that was something that i i really uh struggled with early in the project is is you know is precisely you know how to you know how to structure the book with this this debate being you know, really, the climactic chapter, um, and so the way I decided to do it, uh, and I, I, th- I, th- I hope it worked out okay. But the way I decided to do it was the, the prologue of the book, really. You know, kind of, it starts with them, you know, kind of walking into the Cambridge Union and uh, the the drama of that moment. You know, that February eighteenth, nineteen sixty five. Not only, you know, as Baldwin and Buckley are eating their pre debate dinner across the ocean and you know, Marion, Alabama, outside of Selma, um, there's a civil rights protest that, that, you know, is the night that Jimmy Lee Jackson is mortally wounded. So there's a kind of way in which I sort of, and that that sort of captures these two things happening at the same time, captures uh, the nature of the, the story that I'm trying to tell in the book, which is simultaneously a kind of intellectual history by way of these two, you know, intellectual biographies of these important um, public figures, but also a kind of political history of developments in the civil rights movement um, and in the conservative movement, and so I, I start with the, the prologue, and then I and then you know so after the prologue we go back in time, and so the the, the you know you sort of go from the prologue to you're you're there that night at, at Cambridge in 1965, and then and then you're back you know in the 20s actually I have a, a short chapter it's not a you know biography of the two two men so I don't provide a lot of detail about their childhoods but I do try to give the reader a sense of how their upbringings did not determine their views but helped shape their views and so to talk a little bit about you know the economic circumstances in which Baldwin and Buckley grew up which were so dramatically different the the families that they Grew up in the, the sort of intellectual influences that they had as young men, um, and then the the sort of first you know big chapter is is dealing with Baldwin and Buckley in their early early years as as kind of, kind of making their way onto the intellectual scene. Baldwin, by way of his literary criticism and some of his early essays um, and short fiction, and then Buckley uh sort of arrives you know when he gets to yale and starts raising hell there in various ways and taking on the institution um as a debater and as the uh managing editor or the chairman as they call it of the the yale daily news and then eventually writing god and man at yale which is this book length indictment of the institution for its liberal biases so um you know and then the story basically the way it's structured is um i i just sort of weave these the stories of baldwin and buckley developing intellectually kind of engaging with their writings but also engaging with you know political events that they're participating in uh again set against this backdrop of the rise of these movements that they play such important roles in in shaping so uh that so the it's actually kind of the the reader is uh you know has to wait about 250 pages before they get back to cambridge and the debate itself and so the debate itself. Uh, constitutes two chapters, two you know pretty sizable chapters um, in the book, and then there's one chapter um, after the debate uh, that deals with the aftermath. And so 1965, uh, later in 65, all sorts of important things happen, including that second debate between Baldwin and Buckley, which is much less well known. And then uh, Buckley declares his candidacy for mayor of New York City uh, soon after that second meeting. And so yeah, so then the and then the epilogue I kind of reflect on the legacies of the debate and thinking about you know how Baldwin and Buckley remembered um, their encounters together and try to draw some some lessons for contemporary conversations about racial politics. Once I had the idea of how to structure it, it was um I heard a poet say there's downhill poems and uphill poems and sort of downhill poems are the the ones that kind of write themselves. And this book did not write itself. It was a lot of work. But once I had the idea of the the structure, there was so much material to work with and so much, you know, rich uh, history, so much, uh, you know, um, rich material from these two uh, authors themselves, that it was something that I, I kind of just it flowed pretty well and although it ends up being it's a it's a big book um i think that there's uh it it moves at a steady pace because so much is happening it's it's so important and so relevant to our political lives today
0: so you you talked a little bit there about um baldwin and buckley's early uh, lives and the ways in which there, there were a study of, of contrasts um but also maybe there are some some similarities that we can tease out one thing that you you talk uh, about is is their respective relationships to their parents and in particular their fathers, could you say a bit more about that um and how that might shape their their later understanding of of activism or of um intellectualism or of
1: of, or of their position
0: within America
1: yeah yeah absolutely so yeah baldwin and buckley uh the relationships with their fathers are, are you know so important in, in understanding their intellectual development early on. So, uh, Baldwin is, you know, he grows up in Harlem, born in 1924, uh, as I mentioned before, and his, his father, David Baldwin was actually his stepfather. And he says he's the only father I ever knew. So he refers to him as, as his father. And so he his, his, Baldwin's mother, marries David um, when Baldwin's uh, just a toddler and um, David Baldwin is someone who from, you know, from James Baldwin's perspective is somebody who is, uh, has really been, you know, sort of destroyed, um, you know, his soul has been sort of overtaken by uh, hatred and despair. Um, and I mean, despair is really the, the crucial, I think the crucial idea, because Baldwin says, as he looks at his father, um, he sees someone who is constantly, you know, sort of experiencing a life of domination, right? He's dominated by his economic circumstances, and I sort of detail in the book some of the, you know, economic circumstances. What it was like to be, you know, in a family like Baldwin's in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, he's he's obviously a victim of, of racism and feeling um, degraded by, um, by by white people, you know, uh, every day of his life. And so Baldwin watches his father, who you know, his father's major outlet, his father's major way of dealing with his pain and despair is through the, the church. He's a Pentecost. he's a lay Pentecostal minister. Um, and he's, he's a, uh, somebody who's devoutly religious, um, Jim, yeah, Jimmy. I'll just call him Jimmy for the time being. Jimmy says it's the differentiate him from, from David. Um, Jimmy says his, his father is, uh, is somebody who is, you know, the church provides him with a kind of a way of dealing with his pain, but his, his personal, life is just totally destroyed. I mean, he says that basically, his father um, has this devout religiosity that is clearly helping him hold, you know, himself together, but he's really unable to treat other human beings humanely. And so um, Baldwin watches his father, you know, really almost disintegrate before his eyes. I mean, he says his father's, you know, his soul, his mind, he sort of, um, you know, they they basically fall apart as a result of the, the life he's experiencing. And Baldwin has a really, of course, you know, uh, his father is a very authoritarian figure, and he really rebels against him in a lot of different ways. But he later on sort of recognizes that his father was really, you know, a victim of of, um, a set of circumstances that led him to this life of despair. And there's a really powerful moment for me as a a father myself when Baldwin says, just to capture the sort of how – David was perceived by his, his own children As you know, Baldwin says that um, he can't remember a single moment when any of uh, David's nine children were happy to see him come home, which is just sort of a heartbreaking line that Baldwin um, uses at some point in his autobiographical writing. And I think it gives you a sense of, of just the kind of the ways in which David was overtaken by Despair and how that manifested himself, how it manifested itself in his relationships with other people, and so Baldwin really, you know, thinks about his own goal, his own task is, is escaping, you know, that kind of fate. I mean, he really wants to figure out a way to not become his father, right? In so many different ways, he wants to try to avoid that despair that that consumes his father, and he wants to try um, to find some way out of 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 you know Harlem, you know, in general, but also just find a way out of that way of thinking, try to escape that way of thinking and um, and find some other means of power. Um, and so uh, I think that that's really crucial to understand, you know, as Baldwin himself, like he goes into the church when he's 14 years old, becomes a young minister. He's, you know, of course, raised in this devoutly religious family, finds refuge in the church as, as a kind of a way for him to escape some of the perils of life in Harlem. But then he leaves the church at age 17, And um, but I think he he sort of is he always has his father in mind as somebody who, um, you know, he wants to try to avoid, you know, some of the things that consumed his father. Um, And eventually, of course, he leaves the United States as as part of his quest to do that. Um, And then Buckley. So on the other side, right, this is a a very different story. William F. Buckley, senior, um, is is a is a oil and real estate man. He's made and lost and regained fortunes by the time. Uh, his son is born. William F. Buckley Jr. is born, and um, Buckley Sr. is somebody who has very strong. He's a Texan. He has very strong views, and the, the views that are most relevant you know, to the book. He's, he's devoutly Catholic, um, and he's also devoted to a, a political doctrine he calls individualism. And basically, individualism in this context, he has in mind a, a you know ardent. Um, defense of anything, you know, anti-collectivist, you know, so he's a critic of socialism. He's a critic of the new deal. He's a critic of the welfare state. Um, and he's, uh, he's a critic of egalitarianism. He's, he's definitely a very suspicious of democracy. And so, uh, he really teaches his, his children. So the Buckley uh, children are homeschooled, um, for a great deal of their lives. And, the family, you know, and they have multiple estates. You know, uh, one in, in Connecticut where where William F Buckley spends most of his childhood that they have live-in tutors, you know, that live on the estate uh, to educate the children. And they also have tutors coming in, you know, part-time to teach them every subject under the sun. It's quite a curriculum. One of the things I describe in, in the book is the the curriculum of the Buckley, uh, the Buckley educational system. And so, you know, they teach them all these different things. They're basically preparing them to be, you know, elites who will... Uh, who will play this really important role in resisting um, the excesses of democracy is sort of like you know that's very clear that the Buckleys are being taught that they are going to have a responsibility when they uh, when they enter the public world to you know to be the guardians of um, of you know of, of certain things that were that might might otherwise be consumed by the excesses of democracy and so um Buckley does not seem William F Buckley Jr doesn't ever seem really tempted by following in his father's footsteps into a career in business but what he does decide at a very early age is that his his way of honoring his father will be to be a defender of ideas that that he believes that his father has taught him to believe um have been so essential to his success right so William F Buckley senior Fashions himself as this sort of self-made man, and uh, he he would not have been able to achieve this, you know that you know this these vast riches and so on, uh, you know in a, other if he was in a system that was collectivist, right? So there's a way in which William F. Buckley Sr. teaches William F. Buckley Jr. right that he's got to go out there and defend this system, and uh, and that's exactly what what Buckley does. So there's definitely a sense that you get in looking at Buckley's letters, you know, to his father during his early years when he's at Yale and so on that, uh, you know, he's he's trying to make his dad proud, right? He's, he's out there defending the true faith, defending, you know, not only his devout uh, religious views, but also his, his uh, you know, very dogmatic political views. And so, yeah, in, in many ways, that contrast between Baldwin's setting as his, his goal, a mission to escape, you know, um, the legacy of his father, uh, Buckley is is very much uh, going in the opposite direction and trying to honor his father by uh, by protecting these ideas that he had been taught growing up.
0: Another similarity that we see, while they're still both relatively young, which is probably useful as well for thinking about the kind of international dimension of this book, is, is time they spend abroad. So Baldwin famously spends time in France. Um, Buckley works in, is, or is in Mexico for a, for a time uh, working for, a, for the CIA. How does that experience uh, shape the way that they think about the United States?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think that Baldwin he he feels a sense of, you know, so after uh he's, he's in the United States, uh you know, through he ends up leaving in the, the late 40s his father dies in 1943. Um Baldwin sees one of his his best friends, um Eugene Worth, uh, commit suicide in the in the in the 40s as well. And Baldwin feels this sense of you know despair creeping into his life. He'd also had this kind of uh, especially traumatic experience living in New Jersey, um, and for the first time in his life, being confronted with you know white Southerners who treated him um, in a way. I mean, he experienced plenty of racism growing up in Harlem, but he said there was a kind of level that he he was introduced to in those years that that just seemed um, almost incomprehensible. He said, "I can't imagine what I." Could have done or what anyone could possibly do to deserve to be treated this way uh, by another human being and so baldwin you know feels this sense of i i I need to escape you know physically i need to get out of this country because i will not be able to survive otherwise and so uh, baldwin like a lot of other uh black artists decides to to go to paris and um and he he goes to paris you know with without much, you know, uh money, without a whole lot of without, without a very strong network there or anything like that. But he um he basically I think believes that it's necessary for his survival and also it, he he hopes that as a writer it'll help give him a little bit of critical distance um that will uh, liberate him to write about his experiences in Harlem, because he said he just didn't feel like he could do that um, from Harlem, and he, he felt like he needed that that distance uh, from the the country in general to to be able to actually say something clearly about it. Um, and yeah, Buckley is is somebody who you know is also you know on the move in, in other ways, um, as, you, as you pointed out. I mean, growing up, Buckley Buckley's family, as a result of you know his family's uh, various business concerns, Buckley is is on the move internationally uh, growing up. And that, that seems to have, um, you know, some impact on, on him and and sort of uh, he, I think part of what's happening is that his father, as he's, you know, kind of teaching the family around the, the, uh, you know, the dinner table, so to speak. I mean, he's, he's, I'm sure to point out ways in which uh, places that they're traveling internationally are inferior, you know, to, um, you know, to sort of American civilization as, as as William F. Buckley Sr. understood it. So I think that sort of plays a role in um, in really deepening uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s sense of you know, kind of American exceptionalism. Um, and and then yeah, as, as, after Buckley leaves uh, college and he, he spends some time in the CIA, as you, as you mentioned, down in Mexico, uh, famously, I guess is his, Supervisor down there was uh, E. Howard Hunt, who was, became uh, famous later for his role in, in the Watergate scandal. Yeah, there's that's, that's a part of the story that's good, very murky, you know, in, in terms of you know precisely what Buckley was doing down there. There's a lot of speculation about what he was what he was up to, but um, but yeah, I mean Buckley at, at that point is the the biographical work that I've seen done that that seems most detailed um, indicates that he was probably. You know, down there, uh, sort of the, the cover story was that he was looking after some of his father's concerns. But the the reality was he was probably trying to monitor, you know, radical groups, especially radical student groups. Um, and so, you know, that was a perfect role for him in many ways, because he was somebody who was so um, staunchly uh, anti-communist and anti-collectivist. And so, um, yeah, I think that and then Buckley, you know, he ends up being the kind of international Traveler, he spends every the, one of the reasons he ends up at Cambridge at, to debate Baldwin, or one of the reasons he was able to accept the invitation was he was over in Switzerland doing his uh, doing his ski trip, where he would go ski a few weeks in Switzerland and and write a book. Uh, so that was one. Of, so yeah, Buckley, I think is is, and he's obviously always engaged with this kind of international, you know, the international struggle, especially in the, the Cold War context that's always something that's that's central to his uh you know his concern so i think that yeah they're, they're both in, in different ways i think they're, they're international uh traveling plays a key role in their intellectual life
0: so both men return to the u.s in the in the early 50s and a lot of the meat of, of this book in terms of thinking about the 50s and the early 60s is their relationship to these emerging movements, uh, these tandem movements, so you have the the post-war civil rights movement and then the modern conservative movement. So let's start with Buckley, most obviously channeled through the National Review, um, but also seen in other ways. How does his relationship to both of those movements change or, or perhaps not change during this period?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right to say that the, the meat of the book, the heart of the book um, and sort of my favorite, you know, parts of the book in some ways are are the, you know, the, the sort of mid, mid fifties, you know, through leading up to the debate itself. Um, I think there's just so much, so much rich, rich history there. And so much that I think is uh, at least for me was really helpful in understanding kind of, you know, where we, trying to understand where we are now and how we got here. So Buckley, he you know he graduates from Yale writes God and Man at Yale you know, this indictment of the institution and then he he writes the second book uh, if if God and Man at Yale wasn't controversial enough he decides well, my next book will be a defense of Joseph McCarthy uh, and so he writes a book called McCarthy and His Enemies with um, a guy named Albert Bozel, who was uh, one of his um, college friends and debating partners, and eventually his brother-in-law, and uh, they write this defense of McCarthy. Uh, they, they acknowledge that there's some some criticisms of McCarthy's tactics. They think he's occasionally guilty of exaggeration, uh, but they they argue that McCarthy is a necessary instrument uh, in the, the the international struggle against communism. And essentially, uh, they offer, you know, not a, a wholehearted defense of McCarthy, but a pretty strong one. But Buckley is frustrated. He, he's, you know, happy with the success of God and Man at Yale and McCarthy and its enemies. But he's frustrated with the glacial pace of, of book publishing. And so he um, wants to have more impact on the day to day politics. And so he ends up uh, first trying to get a job, you know, working for one of the you know, major conservative publications at the time. Uh, the American Mercury, and he discovers pretty quickly that he's not cut out to be anybody's employee, and uh, and he leaves that job after about four months. And what he really wanted was a magazine of his own, and. He, he wanted a magazine of his, of his own in part because he saw that the nation and the new Republic had played such an important role in shaping the progressive movement in the early 20th century. And Buckley hoped that, that he could play a similar role on the right and sort of help shape the conservative movement in the second half of the 20th century. And so uh, he goes to his father and, and asks for a, a pretty sizable loan. And fortunately, you know, fortunately for, for junior, uh, senior had the funds to provide it. And and Buckley also proved to be a, a very, uh, you know, successful fundraiser. And so, um, you know, it takes a, a little, a couple, a little bit of time, but he's able to, in the first issue of national review comes out in November, 1955. And it's important for, for folks to remember um, that that, you know, that timing is, uh, is, is really uh, remarkable. And that, you know, 1955 of course sees so many things. We see so many things that are so central to understanding that the next phase in the civil rights struggle, which is, uh, you know the, the lynching of Emmett Till, the arrest of Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott—all that's happening right around the same time. Buckley founds National Review, and of course, the year before the Brown v. Board uh, school desegregation decision. So Buckley founds National Review, and he has in his mind, you know, that this, this magazine can play this really important role in in shaping a movement. And so he uh, anti-communism—you know—he sees very, you know, that that will be the glue that will hold the coalition together. And he, so he, he invites libertarians. You know, so Frank Meyer is among the most prominent kind of libertarian thinkers that he uh, invites on board right away. And uh, he also wants to have, you know, sort of traditionalists uh, that, will, that will be part of the coalition. So he invites famously Russell Kirk to be part of the initial crew. And Kirk's relationship with the magazine is a little bit complicated. We're going to have to get into that. But basically Buckley decides that he's going to try to bring together a a a coalition of folks. Um, And also he's going to play this really important role as a kind of gatekeeper. He's going to sort of decide who is not, who do we, you know, want to leave outside of the, of the coalition. And uh, so most famously, you know, he decides that Ayn Rand um, and her followers are too extreme in, in various ways and their atheism is a big problem for Buckley. So they're not allowed out. Buckley has this kind of more complicated, long breakup with the John Birch society that takes about a decade for him to uh, really distance himself from the Birch society, but he, he wants to sort of he wants to develop an, a responsible intellectual uh, coalition of, of people on the right. And so then the big question is what is this magazine and that this that Buckley sees will play this role, he hopes will play this role in shaping a movement? Where is it going to come down on questions of race and civil rights, which are clearly on a lot of people's minds at the time. And what I say in the book, and this is something that, you know, I'm drawing on the work of a lot of other scholars and making this claim, is that it's not a foregone conclusion that someone founding, you know, a conservative magazine um, in 1955 would be hostile to civil rights. There, there of course, had been the partisan story of. You know, attitudes for civil rights is, of course, a much more complicated one in those days than it is now. You have the sol- solidly Democratic South as so sort of the most intransigent faction on civil rights questions. And you also have another number of people who think of themselves as conservatives um, who are also, you know, supportive of civil rights uh, to one degree or another. So people like William Noland, who Buckley invites, you know, to, to write in one of the keynote articles in the first. Uh, edition of of National Review um, is is a good example of somebody who was supportive of civil rights, uh, Robert Taft, to some extent as well. So Buckley, though, decides that the magazine uh, will be in a position of resistance. And that is a crucial decision that I think uh, has implications that Uh, Are that end up reverberating to this day in terms of the the making of the modern conservative movement. So Buckley, from the you know from the very first issue on forward, um, once his goal, he describes later, ten years after National Review started, he looks back and says, our goal in race was to be uh, on on racial issues was was to be extremely articulate, non-racist but not reflexively uh, accepting of racially, racial egalitarianism. So Buckley is trying to be non-racist, but reject uh, racial egalitarianism. And so that proves to be a really delicate balance. But he makes it very clear the magazine is against Brown v. Board, so they, they editorialize very quickly by calling you know, Brown v. Board a judicial fiat, essentially saying that the federal government, not only the courts, but Congress as well, has no business intervening to try to desegregate uh, in the South Um, He begins commissioning a number of writers. Richard Weaver probably uh, is is the most prominent among the sort of tradition on the traditionalist wing who defends, uh, you know, what he calls the southern regime, the southern way of life, uh, which is very much and Weaver is is pretty explicit about this is very much uh, racial hierarchy is essential to that regime. Um, he commissions James Jackson Kilpatrick, who's known as his biographer, uh, William Huswick calls him the salesman for segregation. And that's certainly what Kilpatrick was, the sort of squire of massive resistance in Virginia, who offered these kind of quasi-intellectual constitutionalist defenses of Jim Crow and, and of uh, resistance and, uh, to, to uh, attempts to desegregate in the South. Um, and so Buckley, you know, commissions all these writers that are going to offer a variety of arguments and uh, to resist the black liberation struggle. And and he, you know, he I think use, he utilizes a lot of their arguments, these categories of argument, um, uh, you know, in his own way. And then his, his own views come through crystal clear in, in one of Buckley's most infamous pieces of writing, uh, an essay he wrote in 1957 called Why the South Must Prevail, which... Um, many listeners have, have, have probably checked out before if they've, um, if they've studied the history of the conservative movement, where Buckley makes a you know, very explicitly white supremacist argument, uh, saying that, you know, the, basically the proximate cause of the essay was the Civil Rights Act of 1957, was working its way through Congress, and it was, you know, being hollowed out of pretty much any meaning uh, by the Southerners in Congress. So this is uh, Strom Thurmond and. Richard Russell and others, and one of the ways that they decided to, uh, to really hollow out the Civil Rights Act of 1957 of any meaning was to uh, say that instead of having federal judges um, consider questions of whether or not black civil rights were being violated, uh, juries should decide. Essentially, the idea there, of course, would be that uh, an all-white jury would be unlikely to ever find any Southern official guilty of violating the civil rights of a black person. So um, Buckley writes Why the South Must Prevail to defend this idea, basically, of you know, jury nullification, uh, basically. And he, he says that, that the reason this is acceptable is because white people are, for the time being, the advanced race. So that's a, That's a quote from Buckley in that piece. And, uh, and so Buckley, you know, he, he ends up, I mean, every step of the way, uh, the National Review is in a position of resistance um, to the, the Black liberation struggle, with a couple of small exceptions. But Buckley uh, is, is, is a little bit nervous about associating with uh, some of the demagogues that have emerged later, but he's pretty comfortable associating himself with some pretty extreme elements, including uh, the, the White Citizens Council in 1958, Kilpatrick. Um, introduces Buckley uh, to William J. Simmons, who is one of the leading citizen, citizen council um, figures and uh, offers uh, Buckley the opportunity to uh, have access to the white citizens council mailing list, 65,000 member mailing list, so that he might be able to get some more subscriptions for national review. And Buckley accepts that invitation and has a exchange of letters with Simmons and, and phone calls. And they, um, they decide that it's perfectly acceptable. And the Citizens' Council, of course, is, is I think, uh, Barry Rustin and others uh, describe the Citizens' Council as the, the uptown clan or the, the clan with the, the, uh, the habits of the Rotary Club. You know, So very much in a position of you know, a racist organization with... Uh, With the same goals of the Ku Klux Klan but just different methods and so Buckley now decides to work with these these folks and never never uh, condemns any of their activities uh, in the magazine or you know in any public way so so that's yeah that's kind of the story and that of course develops over time as we work our way through the the late 50s and early 60s and Buckley will kind of adapt in various ways to whatever the the latest controversy is almost always a position of resistance what is the best strategy to undermine the goals of the Black Liberation Struggle? That's all, Even when he disagrees with means that might be used in one case or another by uh, Southerners, he's absolutely with them um, on the same side of the, the, in the spirit of resistance.
0: And in parallel with that, uh, Baldwin is also trying to work out his relationship to both the, the Black Freedom Struggle and, and also perhaps as a response to the emergence of, of the modern conservative movement. Do we see similar tensions in his activism or his work during this period?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Baldwin begins, um, you know, he first is covers the civil rights movement as a journalist. Right. So he goes down uh, to the south in the late 50s on on assignment for a couple for a few magazines, uh, including Harper's um, to uh sort of interact with people down there including uh, martin luther king to interview martin luther king and he writes a piece about king um and also to uh, have you know have the opportunity to engage with um some of the folks who are on the front lines both in terms of protest and also i mean one of the most powerful moments uh, for me in, in writing the book and i think uh, i my sense and just talking to people over these last couple of weeks one of the most powerful moments and but, you know, for readers as well is, is you know right, right in the midst, you know, as I'm going from these conversations happening you know at National Review in New York where these guys are sitting around figuring out precisely how to rationalize and intellectualize resistance to black liberation. Like, right as those conversations are, are happening, you know James Baldwin is sitting in the living room of a 15 year old boy who's, uh, who's one of the first black students to integrate a high school in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so' there's that contrast, is, to me, just so powerful. And Baldwin, you know, in his, you know, Baldwin's masterful at, uh, as he's, whether he's writing fiction or he's writing nonfiction, he really, his goal as a writer is always to try to help his reader uh, see the world through the eyes of the people that he's writing about. And so he's sitting there with this 15-year-old boy and, and just looking into his eyes and trying to imagine what it must have been like for him to go to that white school on that first day and be confronted with a a barricade of white students trying to keep him from entering the school and what it must have been like for him to be you know the victim of physical assault um, on a regular basis in that school and so baldwin is he wants to understand you know uh, from the inside what that experience must be like And, and one of the things that he does in that same article that he writes about that 15-year-old boy as he goes from, you know, visiting with this 15-year-old boy and his mother and, you know, also has these really powerful reflections on what it must be like for his mother, right, who in some ways, you know, sent him marching toward that white barricade by by applying uh, for him to attend that, that white school because she wanted him to get a good education, right? Um, She, you know, he, he Baldwin goes from that meeting with them to meeting with the white principal of that school and sitting there with this guy and trying to understand what this must look like through his eyes and trying to get a sense of, you know, uh you know, how he thinks through his role, right? What job he has to do and and what that must be like for his soul. And Baldwin I think shows remarkable empathy for people like that principle. I mean he, he says, you know, I went into the room, you know, in many ways wanting to hate this guy, but I found myself rather liking him and trying to understand the turmoil that must be happening in his soul. He's part of this system, right? He's in this he's tangled in this web of white supremacy and he in many ways can't get out of it right He still even though Baldwin sort of likes him on some level he still says this man is deluded right in terms of, of some he's unable to see the humanity of this this black child that he's been charged with in some way to, to protect and so Baldwin you know writes these really powerful pieces covering the civil rights movement in that kind of way really trying to get inside the head of, of everyone that he meets down there and and over time though baldwin uh is trying to figure out his role in terms of uh is his As he's increasing in prominence he knows he has to go from you know being a witness right he often calls himself a witness right i'm here to write it all down Uh, but he also sees that he has some you know duty uh, to, to be more directly engaged. And so I think even his, you know, the, the writing he does as a witness is a, is a form of, absolutely a form of, of very powerful engagement. But Baldwin um, begins to try to sort of like, you know, voice his own positions on a lot of these issues uh, by the early 60s. Um, and he's never, Baldwin's not somebody who's comfortable identifying himself with any particular ideology, with any particular organization. Um, he does have, you know, special affinity for, uh, for CORE, the, the um, Congress for Racial Equality, the and SNCC, the um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and so he finds himself occasionally, you know, engaging in those early years in the early '60s as kind of representative of nonviolent resistance, you know, on television and, and on the radio. Uh, you know, most famously, they have him appear, you know, opposite Malcolm X, right, and, and Malcolm, and Malcolm kind of playing uh, the part of, uh, you know, uh, he's a critic in many ways of of the sort of some of the early civil rights work that he finds to be demeaning for for various reasons, and Baldwin is trying to defend, in many ways, uh, what he thinks is the philosophical and political importance of the black liberation that that we're we're witnessing in the early sixties and trying to explain why this is different and why the world we are on the brink of a a revolution in many ways. A revolution in the early sixties I should say that Baldwin is quite hopeful about. But yeah, so Baldwin goes from from that to, you know, eventually writing you know, Letter from a Region of My Mind, which is published in The New Yorker in, in November 1962. And that, you know, his, he's already becoming, you know, a household name in a lot of ways. He's getting a lot of these pieces about the black liberation struggle and other topics published in more ho- high profile pl- places like The New York Times. And, and then with Letter from Region in My Mind, you know, which is, becomes this, just phenomenon in its own right, published in November 1962, and eventually combined with a, a a shorter piece, My Dungeon Shook, that was published in uh, late 1962, initially by the Progressive Magazine. Those two are coupled together in what would become the book, The Fire Next Time, which comes out in 63, which then, you know Baldwin is on the cover of Time magazine and everywhere else. So Baldwin becomes second only to Martin Luther King in terms of uh, the face and voice of, of the Black liberation struggles. So yeah, Bal- so Baldwin is 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 like in the thick of this. He's not, you know, it's in terms of your, you know, part of your question was, you know, Baldwin also engaging with the right. I mean Baldwin. Um, is engaging with the right in his own way, uh, you know, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in not-so-subtle ways in some of those writings I just described. But he, I think another sort of really remarkable moment, there was actually an archival discovery um, for me uh, at the Schomburg. Baldwin, in his papers there, he has the full transcript of a debate that he had in late 1962 with James, the aforementioned James Jackson Kilpatrick, one of Buckley's uh, closest friends and colleagues um, in a lot of ways, the squire of massive resistance, the editor of the Richmond News Leader, the, the, one of the leading salesmen for segregation. Um, Baldwin was invited in 1962 to debate Kilpatrick, uh, debate segregation with Kilpatrick on the Open Mind television show. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing encounter where you have Baldwin sitting across a table from this leading uh, defender of segregation. and it's, it's right in the sec- within weeks, um, just after the, the battle at Ole Miss when James Meredith, Black Air Force veteran was was um, attempting to register for classes at the University of Mississippi and the, you know all hell broke loose and uh, the federal troops had to be called in, et cetera, et cetera. And Baldwin just starts that encounter with Gilpatrick by saying, you think you are not responsible for violence that occurs, racist violence that occurs in the streets of this country. But I hold you, sir, far more responsible than any of those people who are actually committing those acts of violence in the street. Um, and so Baldwin just he does this remarkable you know, uh, it's a remarkable takedown, you know, of the segregationists on you know on national television. Uh, and so that's that was in that in many ways, you know, kind of you know it's, it's a couple years earlier, but it's it sort of sets you know sets us up for Baldwin eventually engaging with Buckley, which is something I should say that Baldwin's friends and and handlers did not want him to engage with any of these guys. They thought it was a mistake for him to you know share a platform with a seg you know with a segregationist like Kilpatrick or or somebody like Buckley. But Baldwin was absolutely, you know, committed to the idea that he had a duty uh, to, to to confront these people and to try to expose them uh, for what they were.
0: So, in in the first half of the '60s, as prospective figureheads in in different ways of, of these movements, Baldwin and Buckley are, are circling each other. And, and we're building up to, of, of course, the moment of, of the book, which is which is the debate in Cambridge. So how exactly does that debate come about? Is it just serendipity or is it uh, part of a more deliberate
1: process? It's serendipity, really. It's it's a remarkable thing. So um, and this is one of the great mysteries. You know, there, there have been you know articles written um, and things over the years about the debate, but there was no there were, hadn't really been at least what I was able to discover any clear explanation of how this happened, right? We all, uh, the, the, the YouTube the BBC recording of the debate had gone viral, um, you know, several years ago, but there there was not, at least as I was able to discover a clear explanation of, of how this happened. So basically the story was, and um, this was, you know, something that obviously the interviews I did with the Cambridge students and then, Uh, The archival work, especially in the Baldwin uh, Archive, helped me piece together the story. So um, in 1965, late 1964, early 1965, uh, the Baldwin's UK publisher uh, was preparing to release a paperback edition of Baldwin's third novel, Another Country, and they uh, wanted to saturate the, the media market, the media landscape in uh, London and surrounding areas with Baldwin for about a week in, um, in early 1965. And so the publicist is reaching out to everybody: the Oxford Union, the Cambridge Union, uh, you know, obviously major media outlets, and so on. And he uh, he contacts Peter Fullerton, who's this undergraduate who's the president of the Cambridge Union. He says. You know, it took a lot of courage to do this, but I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I have to decline. Of course, you know, the mo- one of the most famous writers in the world, uh, an offer for him to come to your campus and, and uh, to the union and Floyd's and uh, decline. He says, well, this is a debating society. It would be inappropriate for us to. Host a you know just a book a book talk, and so um, he says I would however be willing to host Baldwin for a debate if you'd be willing to come here to debate the themes of his writing and so Collins I think kind of agrees from what I've been able to gather from the the archives you know agrees to that in principle pending Baldwin's approval, um, and without knowing what the motion will be without knowing what who his opponent will be, um, and so over the next few weeks then it sort of things begin to develop so Fullerton. Uh, starts to figure out what would be an appropriate motion for Baldwin to debate. And, um, Fullerton had been, was familiar with Baldwin. He had read some of Baldwin's works and he doesn't recall exactly, you know, how he went about drafting the motion. But it seems like, you know, it, it seems clear to me that in, he had read The Fire Next Time. And I think the fire next time was probably the, you know, the most, the closest thing to an inspiration for the motion, because there are, the motion ends up being, you know, the American dream is the expense of the American Negro. And there's some really powerful language in the fire next time about the American dream that I, you know, I, at least, you know, my theory is that that in some way might have inspired Fullerton as he was drafting the motion. And so then they're trying to figure out, okay, who are we going to get to debate Baldwin? They had a very short time period here. It was only about a month they had. To get some to pull this all together, and Fullerton's first first idea was to invite uh, a sitting U.S. senator to debate Baldwin. That wouldn't have been you know that unusual for the union. They they would often invite elected officials to come participate as, as honored guests in, in these these big high profile debates. Uh, but Fullerton says they were they were you know their invitations were declined. There was no senator willing to to share a platform with Baldwin. I imagine, and he doesn't remember exactly who they invited, but he thought probably people like Strom Thurmond, Barry Goldwater, who were either very hostile to or skeptical of uh, the civil rights movement. So they, they're unable to find a senator to to meet with him. And one of Fawcett's classmates and fellow fellow union official, a guy named Michael Tugendhat, he says, you know, what about William F. Buckley Jr.? And at that time, Buckley would go on to sort of international fame. But at that time, Buckley was um, was very famous in the United States. He was, you know, second in prominence in terms of you know conservative uh, figures to only to only the Goldwater. But internationally, he wasn't quite as well known yet. But Tugendhat had traveled to the United States in 1963 and was introduced to Buckley um, by family friends, and so he knew enough. And I, I was able to t- to communicate with Tubmanhot as well as I was writing the book. And he just doesn't remember perci- uh, how much he knew in terms of like how resistant Buckley was to civil rights, but he knew that he he knew that he remembered that he was a formidable debater, that that was part of his his background, and that um, he was likely to be somebody who would disagree with Baldwin about a lot of things. And so. Duggenhardt was able to contact Buckley, who was at that time uh, you know, doing his annual ski trip in Switzerland, and he um, asked him if he'd be willing to come debate Baldwin. And of course, Buckley would never refuse a debate. You know, he was somebody who was uh, constantly on the road debating and, and had written quite a bit about Baldwin um, at that to that point and referred to him as an eloquent menace. And so the idea of debating Baldwin must have been extremely appealing to Buckley. Um, and so he agrees. And they... The publicist goes back then to Baldwin's um, handlers and says, okay, well, here's the deal. I have a a debate set up for Baldwin at the Cambridge Union um, with William F. Buckley Jr. And a week before the debate, February 11th, 1965, uh, the telegram sent by Baldwin's agent, Robert Lance, um, to uh, the publicist at Corgi Books, just as like maybe two sentences, it says, just learned of uh, your plan to have Baldwin debate Buckley at the Cambridge Union. Please cancel it. (laughs) Uh, And basically the the explanation that the agent gave later on was that, um, and I I sort of, this is one of those quotes that just sort of stuck in my mind over the, over the months of working on the book uh, is, you know, he says that Buckley is a master at getting under your skin. And so in order to deal with him, you have to be cool. And he said, Jimmy is never cool about the world's problems. He is always aroused. (laughs) So uh, Robert Lance's agent said, there's no way I want my client to go share a stage. You know, know, at that point, the BBC was going to record it, uh, this international stage, a high profile event. He was very worried about Baldwin uh, being, you know, uh, on the platform with Buckley. And so What's unclear is that of course we know right that ha- that was sent one week um before the debate. The debate was not canceled, right the debate went on, and so i it's in fullerton doesn't even doesn't recall anybody reaching out to him attempting to cancel it, so I suspect that probably some combination of things happened um one is that the publicist, you know, may have gone back to Baldwin's agent and, and, and pointed out, look, this has already been advertised. The BBC is coming to record it. You know, it, you, you might have a bigger PR problem on your hands if you cancel it. Um, second, I really, you know, and this is, there's not, uh, I couldn't find, you know, documentary evidence this, but there's, you know, uh, enough evidence in terms of Baldwin's point of view that uh, I think is a pretty, I feel confident making the claim that Baldwin, if he was CC'd on the, on the cancellation telegram. And um, I suspect that Baldwin was was far less worried about confronting Buckley than his his agents were. And so, you know, like I said, when when ba- ba- Buckley when Baldwin was invited to debate Kilpatrick in '62, people tried to stop him from doing it, and he you know he persisted. And uh, and I, I think that Baldwin you know knew what he was able to do with Kilpatrick, and and so he uh, he went ahead and 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 had this debate with Buckley. and, and so fortunately. You know, I think for a lot of reasons, you know, historically, but also politically in terms of, I think, the power of the debate itself for for all of us and thinking through questions of of race and justice. Um, Fortunately, the debate did go on and they they met a week later Uh, and the the debate itself. I mean, one thing I I, I should mention is that many folks have seen the BBC recording on YouTube and um, that is. Edited to fit within an hour. So what folks are getting when they watch that debate is they are getting the entirety of Baldwin's speech, which was 24 minutes long. It's very hard to figure out what to cut from that speech in a lot of ways. But they're only getting a portion of Buckley's speech. So Buckley actually delivers a longer speech, about 29 minutes and one of the really uh really cool archival and this is not quite an archival find but one of the really cool discoveries um in this process of, of working on the book was that i i i many others who've worked on the debate had this suspicion that something was a little bit odd about our our documentary record and then we had the bbc recording that is you know an hour long and then we had what was the new york times published what they call the condensed transcript of the debate two weeks later in the Sunday magazine, and there are things in the condensed transcript that are not on the on the on the recording. So clearly there was like sort of this epistemological question of like, who, you know, who said what, you know, and and what's what's missing. And so I set out to try to find, you know, a complete recording of of the debate and the union itself um, did not have one. They, they said they, they have audio recordings of debates, um, but they thought that that one was destroyed or lost. They didn't have it, so I was really bummed about that. But then, um, fortunately, one of the students I interviewed, a guy named Adrian Vincent, who was president of the union after, after the debate, uh, the term after, um, after Fullerton, and he, um, as a president of the union, one of the privileges you were for it was to request audio recordings of debates that occurred um, while you were a student. And so Vincent, fortunately, at some point requested uh, recordings of the Buckley and Baldwin speeches. And so when I interviewed Adrian, he, he said, you know, I have... I have an old reel-to-reel <laughs> uh, recording of the speeches, and so he was willing to, to ship those from England over to me in Portland, Oregon. I took them to one, you know, digital recording place uh, here, where they were unable to, you know, they weren't able to work with it, and so I, you know, I thought this is not, this is horrible, you know, we, could, we were unable, to, you know, capture what's on these on these reels, and then we, uh, I, I found another for um, digital recording expert who was able to digitize. The, uh, the debate. Uh, so we now have, for the first time, I believe, you know, in terms of, you know, for scholars, future scholars going forward, we have the full Buckley speech. The audiobook version of The Fires Upon Us has the full Baldwin and Buckley speeches included as an appendix. And the book itself has an appendix that includes a full transcript. Uh, so that will be available, you know, to, to folks for the first time, which we're really excited about.
0: You've been listening to New Books in American Studies podcast channel of the new books network a reminder that the book discussed in today's episode the fire is upon us is out this month so consider picking it up at your local independent bookstore or wherever you get your books for nick bucola i've been your host james west and we hope you'll stop by again soon